we ended up spending a few months, quite a lot of money to get not even anything approaching an MVP that worked. That was a bit stressful. Welcome to Two Sided, the Marketplace Podcast, brought to you by ShareTribe. Hi, I'm Stuart, CMO at ShareTribe, and I'm your host. I'm actually very excited today because this is the first time that I can say to at least some of you, welcome back, because we dropped the first three episodes last week and the response has been absolutely amazing. And if you're one of the people who heard those and came back, thank you so much. And also thank you for the fantastic response we've gotten so far. Now, let's dive into the episode. So in this episode, I'm talking to Charles Armitage. Charles was actually a doctor and training to go into emergency medicine but then decided to radically change his career to start a marketplace for independent nurses and elderly care. Well, Charles will tell us all about that, and it's a very interesting story. But he'll also show us the importance of talking to your customers before actually building your huge product. Uh, You know, spoiler alert, their first version failed hard, and how to build relationship and trust in such a delicate market. Again, I've only had fantastic episodes so far, and this one is no exception, so... Sit tight and listen to Charles' story about Florence. Hi, Charles. Welcome to the show. Hi, sure. Thanks very much for having me. Hey, I uh, checked out a little bit of your background. I saw that you're trained as a doctor. And, well, I think we'd like to know a little bit more about you. So can you tell us a little bit about what you did before you ended up at Florence? Sure. So, uh, absolutely right. So, I was a, uh, a doctor in the UK and did a number of different specialties, but kind of was settling in on emergency medicine and then latterly surgery. So, was pursuing a career in trauma surgery, but still relatively kind of early on in that journey. It takes quite a long time to get to, you know, the end of being a trauma surgeon. But yeah, so worked in a lot of places, worked in London, a lot on the South Coast and up in Scotland, and then some other funny places around the world like South America and Africa and places like that. That was too boring for you, or what was the reason why you were like, hey? Sure, the answer is that some of it was a bit boring, actually. So I could talk about this forever, but the thing about medicine is that um, you, know, you get moments of absolute huge adrenaline rushes and amazing thrills, also punctuated by quite a lot of time grinding your head against quite a challenging system. And you can spend a lot of your time doing paperwork and feeling like you're not necessarily having a massive impact, and certainly that the impact you're having isn't exactly scalable you're kind of n equals one and there's only so much you can do really to make a change and so were you always into tech that you're like i'm gonna start a startup or like maybe you can tell us a little bit into the origin of florence yeah for sure i mean i've always been kind of interested in tech and i always like new shiny things but essentially you know learn more and more about myself and my drivers as kind of i go on the journey but essentially i just like new things and maybe i've got a slightly short attention span so always kind of looking for something new on the horizon. And um, I was working in London at the time in emergency medicine and was really enjoying that job. But at the same time, was kind of investigating things on the side. And one of the things I noticed, and it's kind of a pervasive problem throughout healthcare in the UK and actually most of the world, is you know the biggest challenge is staffing. And how do you create a solution to some of the biggest challenges we face as a society, which is... You know, looking after an aging population and providing the staff to do that in like a safe and high quality way. So I was messing around with some, 
you know, ideas in this any department trying to kind of build a map for, you know, me and my colleagues to swap shifts and, you know, work more effectively between us and obviously like couldn't build it because I'm not technical. And but started kind of the idea going and didn't really come to much. And then met my co-founder, Dan, who is from the military, but I guess comes from the other side of the fence as well. He manages a care home group or managed a care home group in London. So was having challenges finding staff to you know, look after their residents. And we met, we were introduced by a mutual friend and kind of started bouncing some ideas around. We both had ideas in the kind of space of how can we use technology to bring together this supply and demand in a more intelligent way and, you know, high quality, cost effective, all these kind of great things. And then we just started like thinking about it and iterating on that. And, you know, the rest is history. Yeah. For the people at home. So could you tell us a little bit about what is Florence exactly? Sure. So Florence is the online marketplace for flexible staffing, on-demand staffing in the care sector in the UK. So what we do is we have a platform that connects care homes to nurses and carers looking for extra shifts. And I guess traditionally, the problem in the UK care sector is a massively understaffed industry. So there's around about 120,000 vacancies in UK care sector. So what ends up happening is a huge proportion of shifts, mm-hmm. about 10% of all shifts in healthcare in the UK are filled by temporary workers, flexible workers. Is that elderly care only or healthcare? Yeah, so when I talk about care, I'm kind of talking about elderly care in the community. All right. So in care homes, nursing homes, not necessarily the healthcare sector, which is more the NHS. And there's a yeah. bit of a differentiation in the UK. But what ends up happening is about 10% of this workforce is temporary, is flexible, and it's managed, pre-Florence was managed by traditional recruitment agencies who are really fragmented offline processes, you know, one man on his phone kind of with relationships with individual workers or homes and bring these two people together. And, you know, whilst that's a model that's worked for a very long time, it was hugely expensive for the care sector. So billions spent every year just on the kind of the agency margins in the middle. And there's just so much that could be done with technology to improve those engagements. Yeah. And so Dan had experienced that problem himself. Yeah, so he was the chairman of this nursing home that couldn't find nurses. And I, on the other side, was a doctor who would occasionally work these flexible shifts in the NHS. And, you know, weekends or holidays, I'd, you know, want to get an extra shift for a bit more pocket money. And whilst I knew there was a shift down the road, I'd have to call up my recruitment agency and get sent to Birmingham and, you know, turn up and get thrown the keys and told, you know, that they'd be back in 12 hours. So it was generally a really poor experience and I knew there was a better way of doing it. Yeah. And so you said Dan is your co-founder. Is he a more technical person, even though he ran the care home? No, no, he's even less technical than me, which is quite fascinating. So so how did you get to your first, you know, what was Florence 1.0? Yeah, it was a bit of a disaster, really. Tell us, that sounds super interesting. Well, I mean, there's always, I think, is it ever not a disaster? So we, I remember we had a little bit of cash to start off with, not very much at all. And neither of us really knew anything about, you know, how to build a product, how to talk to users, anything like that. So we kind of thought, well, there's this problem and we need this platform to do a hundred things. You know, we needed to manage the whole life cycle and do all these different things. And we need it done in the next two weeks. And we only want to spend this amount of money on it. And so, you know, you go to the internet and ask the internet if someone can do that for you. And someone somewhere puts up their hand and says they can. And, you know, we ended up spending few months, quite a lot of money to get not even anything approaching an MVP that worked. That was a bit stressful. But it was a really good learning point because what we then did is in that process, obviously, you start speaking to users. And, you know, I went and sat in a care home for a few months and drove some nurses to shifts and things like that. And, you know, you speak to people and you kind of come to the realization yourself that actually what I need to do here really to solve 80% of the problem is a very, very simple product. 
and actually we ended up kind of rolling back to just a Google Sheet where the nursing homes would go into a Google Sheet and put in their shifts. And then 10 nurses that we'd found, five nurses actually originally, would say, yeah, interested in that one, that one, that one. And then that was it. And there you go, you got a platform there. So you got a platform that didn't work at all. And then you thought, hey, what's actually the basic feature that I need? And that was just purely show availability. That's it. And a way to express interest or something like that. Yeah, exactly. So you got a platform and I remember taking it to this nursing home because I'd phoned up a list of loads of nursing homes in London and told them this kind of madcap idea. One of them said they were interested in giving a shot. So I went up and I was showing all the staff around this and I was going, okay, cool. So this is how you post your shifts. It was just like completely dysfunctional, like non-functioning product. Yeah. And then we just realized that actually, what is it they need to do? They need a place where they can put their availability or what they need. And then on the other side, you need somewhere for the workers to be able to go in and say, claim that, I'd like that one, thank you very much. Then everything else, you just you know do things that don't scale and manage it offline. So whilst day one, we were like, we need to have a payment infrastructure in there. That was like a day one requirement. You very quickly realize that actually you don't, you know, and we just sat there hammering our, you know, internet banking, paying people. And that was fine for quite a long time. Okay. So would you say that that's one of your sort of biggest learnings? So I guess that's something, the reason why I come back to this, because this is something that we also see at ShareTribe all the time. Of course, there's always a feature missing, but we often see people have indeed a long list of features. And then we really try to engage in the conversation and ask, but okay, but what is it? What's the thing that you really need? Like if you would have to strip like everything down. And totally. I mean, I still make that mistake all the time is you're like, right, we need to do this new thing. We need this new feature because without this new feature, this isn't going to provide value. And, you know, you're always looking to that next new feature, but then yeah. realize that actually you just speak to people and find out really what is it they're trying to achieve? What is the job they're trying to do? You arrive at a much more elegant solution. Yeah. Fantastic. That's obviously playing very well into our product, but I won't go too deep into that. But yeah. Okay, okay. cool. So first version, Google Sheet, how did you get, even with the Google Sheet version, how did you get supply and demand? Like, how did you get the first people on board? Well, by this time, we were lucky enough to have our now CMO, Buni, who was kind of first guy in the door, who really kind of, you know, taught us everything and kind of put us in the right direction. So, you know, he's fairly weathered guy, wouldn't mind me saying it, but he's done this a few times. So he, he, he kind of knew what was going on. Yeah. So how did we get the first customers? Well, on the demand side, on the care home side, I found a list of all the care homes in London and I sat down with a phone and just called them all up one by one. And just old school direct Yeah, sales. eventually got three to one. Okay. Who, you know, had 20 shifts a week they needed to fill. So, you know, promised them that, that we would kind of bend over backwards, try and make it work. And ultimately ended up having to put a huge amount of elbow grease into the relationship early doors because the product didn't work. But, you know, in that relationship building, that unscalable relationship building, you learn a huge amount about your customers you can make a great sort of place for developing your product. And you can also get a lot of get out of jail free cards just by building that relationship. And then on the other side, for the demand side, for the nurses, we did a similar thing. So we, you know, went around Facebook and called in some favors and found some poor nurses to, and I got, I still, you know, some of them today, I'm like, two of them are still with us, actually. Like yeah. in the first five nurses are still using Florence, but there was one or two who, you know, definitely didn't have the best user experience to start off with. Okay. Was that the product or was that just because the shift didn't work out for them? Uh, well, I remember the first shift on Florence. It was, you know, weeks and months in the making. And there was this girl called Neve, who was an absolutely delightful person. And she was just so patient. So week after week, there were these full starts where we were like, okay, cool, the shift's going to work. Then it would get cancelled last minute. And, you know, you'd have to disappoint Neve. And then finally, it was a Saturday night and they needed a shift. And then they posted it and Neve got it. And she went to the shift. 
and I was like head over heels, so excited. I think I was out for dinner or something. It was kind of basically on the phone to her all the way there. She was really excited, went in and did the shift. And then at the end of it comes out and go, you know, I phoned her up the next morning. So like, how was it? She's like, oh, it was really, really difficult, but, you know, really hard. But I'm happy to go back again, happy to do it again. And I was like, that's fantastic. And, and then I phoned up the care home and they're like, oh, it was, you know, it didn't go very well. You know, I don't know. It was challenging. I remember it being very challenging. And it went fine, but they were like, oh, we, you know, they're getting all these cold feet and all this kind of stuff. So I had to, you know, explain to me that she can get back. I remember it being a very challenging thing. But anyway, Neve, if you're out there, I need to send you some flowers because you uh, you got it off the ground. Yeah, I can imagine that in this business, like being able to trust what's coming from both sides is actually like super important, right? I mean, if the nurse would know that, okay, hey, this place is not really great at working with temp nurses, for example, because it, it could be, you know, not pointing blame on either side. Yeah. Or if the other way is like, hey, well, this is just not a great nurse for this particular environment. How do you solve for that now? Like, do you get more of these situations still? Totally, all the time. And I think, you know, we're dealing with a really precious commodity, which is people. And you're bringing people together, which can be both a very magical and high value thing and can lead to like really great relationships going forward, which is super satisfying. But at the same time, can also lead to, you know, very challenging situations and moments of quite a lot of risk, especially in healthcare where, you know, you're dealing with vulnerable people. So if bad things happen, things go badly quickly. So controlling that quality piece is really important. And especially when you're doing things at scale, it's very hard to do that on like a one-to-one basis. And, you know, you can't operate a tech platform if you don't have those systems and processes in. So, you know, basic things like putting in reviews and feedback within the platform was really useful for us. And, you know, being able to surface user behavior very easily to the other side of the marketplace. So, you know, we have a challenge with, let's say, care homes cancelling shifts, right? That's a terrible experience for the worker because, you know, they've cleared their diary for 24 hours to go and do a shift at a care home and then the care home cancels it. Now, that can happen and, you know, you don't want to punish people for that. But if it's kind of repeat behavior and sometimes it is, you need to find a way of making sure the platform is self-policing and stopping that happening. Yeah. Have you, for example, have you kicked off uh, nursing homes? Like, hey, you know, this is the fourth time you're canceling. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And the other side as well, I guess. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And again, that can be a really emotional thing because, you know, you get close to your users and the team know the users pretty well. So, you know, there's always, you have to put quite rigorous processes in place to say, right, well, these are the rules. You know, this is the governance of the platform that if you do this behavior, you know, we say if you cancel a shift within 24 hours for the start time, three times in a month, then that's it. I'm afraid you've had your chance. Yeah. And you've just got to be really clear at communicating that and educating the users about how to behave well in the ecosystem. Yeah. Hey, actually, one thing early on that I think is probably the most interesting question, actually, that most people are interested in is like, we did the Google Sheet, you call people on the way to the shift, but then once you start growing or once you sort of move to the next step, did you in any way sort of constrain your marketplace? Because usually that's what they say that, you know, you should either go in one location or I guess you are already sort of vertically constrained, like you're in the elderly care category, I guess we could say. So uh, did you do this well? Like, did you start in London or? Yeah, so we started very specifically in West London. Okay. Hyperlocal marketplace. So you know that people don't want to travel more than, you know, half an hour to a shift. So that limits your geographical constraint. And, you know, Day one, now let's say you're trying to pick up an Uber in London and there's one driver and one rider in the whole of London. Well, the marketplace doesn't work, does it? So no. achieving that point of liquidity as quickly as possible is you know, essential and it's ultimately the main task. We kind of know anecdotally it's coming more and more evidence-based as we grow, but the platform works organically when you've got about 100 shifts per week and about 60 workers to do those within a one-hour sort of travel time radius. Okay. And it's just kind of what we've arrived at as our kind of success metric. And 
at that point, you know, the shift gets posted by a care home and it gets filled in a, you know, suitable amount of time with the right worker with the right skill set. Now, day one, again, not knowing what we know now, you know, we went into, if I'm a nursing home, I might need loads of different staff types. I might need a nurse, I might need a care worker, I might need a, you know, a cleaner, a chef, whatever it is. And we kind of went in expecting to provide all of those staff types day one and certainly both nurses and care workers. And we realized quickly that by spreading ourselves thinly across both nurses and care workers, we were really, really impacting the user experience of the platform because all our efforts, you know, at those early stages, your time and efforts are really, really valuable. So spreading them too thinly was really deleterious. So we actually fairly soon into the process, probably three months in, we actually decided to stop doing care workers. And we said, right, actually, we're just going to concentrate on doing one thing well, which is matching nurses to nursing shifts in care homes and dominate that in one small chosen market. And then we gradually went to London and then took us months and months to go to the Southeast and then a year to go to our second city. And then by that time, we kind of started to work out how to make the machine work. Then we went across the country. And we've only recently reinstalled care workers on the platform because you know we wanted to reach that liquidity point for nurses in nursing shifts across the country before we went on to the next thing. Coming back to the like expanding by geo, like by location, like did you have a kind of playbook that like, okay, how do we, you mentioned that, hey, we needed, you know, 100 shifts is the magical number. Did you have some playbook like how to get there? You know, again, we're kind of constantly iterating on that one. And to say we've got the solution, I wouldn't say we've got the solution. I remember we went to our second market, which was Manchester. And by that time, we were a team of maybe eight people, still very scrappy startups. And we like, okay, cool. So how do we launch a new market? Like, how do we do this? So we all went and got an Airbnb in Manchester and, you know, printed off, made some T-shirts and printed off some flyers and went around hospitals trying to like fly nurses. And again, it was just like a really, the Airbnb we had was in like just the roughest part of town. And so, it was, you know, you go to sleep at night, there'd be like, you know, gunshots or whatever. And uh, <laughs> it was quite fun. It was a pretty, you know, good team building moment. But I remember we, we spent a week up there as a whole team, like going around nursing homes, knocking on doors, firing nurses. Yeah. And we'd set these really ambitious targets that by the end of the week, we'd have this many workers on the platform and this many care homes. And we, you know, might have had like one worker or something like that. So we realized, well, that doesn't actually work. So we kind of went back to London and we kind of debriefed a little bit and kind of went for much more of a digital strategy, actually, then, you know, using the channels that we kind of knew that were working. So, you know, paid social media marketing. So Facebook is a really big channel for us for, for nurse acquisition. And then just kind of grew organically from that. We do have a bit more of a playbook now. You know, we have a sort of like timeline, right? If we're going to launch in this area, we want to put marketing on here. And then T minus this many days, we want to put the sales team in there. And then T minus this many days, we want to have this many workers, all this kind of stuff. But we're always improving on that. Yeah, so because that's interesting, because if I wouldn't have known this, I would think that like, oh, yeah, in person, it's going to work really well for this, because this is so much mm. trust based, you need to understand that like, yeah, these people are really true to their word, they respect me as an employee, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And so you are saying actually that in person wasn't as successful as social media marketing. So Facebook for you is more efficient. Well, the in person relationship is super important. And yeah. to this day, we have a big team of people out on the road seeing care homes all the time you know just going in and having a cup of tea and building relationships really really important yeah but that's for the supply side right or sorry demand side yeah demand side yeah on the supply side um it is also important and you know bringing the community into the office and you know building those relationships is really important but what we noticed was that certainly in this manchester trip right firstly how do you find nurses you're like okay where do i find nurses okay well i'll go to a hospital you go to a hospital and you realize that all the nurses in the hospital are actually really busy doing important stuff and don't want you giving them a flyer telling them to sign up to an app. So there's absolutely no intent 
of that user at that point to be looking for work or joining the platform. So whilst you can maybe speak to them and try and sell to them. Yeah, but they're probably either like late for their shift or they just had a 12-hour shift and just want to go home. Like, exactly, yeah. exactly, yes. exactly. Actually, we found that you can much more easily access people with that intent to potentially get involved in your product when they're more comfortable at home rather than you know, covered in vomit and blood or whatever. That makes sense. Uh, you already mentioned, so, okay, nurses, easier to reach that side through Facebook, social media marketing. And you referred already now that, yeah, on the other side, look where the care homes are, the personal relationship is really important. Are you still, if you go now to a new city, how would you go about getting new care homes on board? Well, there are fewer of them than the workers. So we kind of have a bit more of a salesy process to that. So, you know, you get a list of all the care homes in the area and you maybe do some email marketing to them. That works a bit. You know, you pick up the phone and speak to them. That works a bit. What works most and works best is, you know, referrals. So if you can get a care home manager to speak to another care home manager and let them know that Florence are good guys, then that's pretty helpful. What's the story you tell them then? Like, what is the benefit? Like for the nurses, we've sort of established already that, okay, this is this is great pocket money, or maybe even we can go into it a little bit later, what's on the platform for the nurses. But what's the story that you tell the care homes? Like, what's the benefits that they get from using Florence? Yeah, I mean, it depends who you're speaking to at a care home. So the care home market is such that you have kind of very small individual providers who owner operator run all the way up to quite big corporate chains. So identifying your the needs and desires of the person you're speaking to is super important. So if I speak to a care home manager, the thing they desire most is that if they're getting a nurse in for a shift, a night shift at 8 p.m., their key thing is they want to make sure that when they're at home at 8 p.m. in the evening, that nurse turns up and is safe and effective to run the care home for the night. That's it. So reliability and quality, two most important things. Now, if you go to maybe the nursing home owner or the finance team, then it's much more potentially about the bottom line or insights or you know operational efficiency. So you maybe have to adapt your message a little bit more to that audience. And then if you go to the HR team, then it becomes much more around training and compliance and quality. So different people have different drivers there. So do you offer that training and compliance? Like, is that part of your platform? Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much this, um, maybe you'll talk about this later because this might play well into the sort of share tribe narrative here. But, you know, one of the key things is, you know, you're building a marketplace. Avoiding disintermediation is pretty key. And keeping people on platform is, you know, super important. Now, for us, the cost of acquiring a care home or a nurse, the CAC is pretty high. So you need to get a pretty decent LTV out of them for it to be worthwhile. Now, Mm -hmm. what is it that keeps people in the platform? Now, we're super averse to punishing people for off-platform transactions. So if a care home and a nurse want to work together full-time off-platform, then we're like, fantastic. You know, a happy customer is much more important than any sort of referral bonus or fee or whatever, or, you know, temp to plan fee or whatever. Yeah. Now, but you still kind of want to keep people in your ecosystem as much as possible. And to do that, you need to ask the question, not what's stopping them leaving, but what's keeping them locked in. So that's when you start to have to bring in value adds. Like, okay, well, as soon as payments are in the platform, then that keeps people sticky to some degree. One thing that's really important in healthcare is compliance and the regulator. So knowing that the nurse who's turning up for the shift is safe to do so. So they're trained, they have the right experience, they have the right background checks, the right work checks, insurance, all that kind of stuff. So massive part of our job at Florence is to take this pool of nurses and care workers that register, put them through that onboarding process to curate their profiles and make sure that they are compliant and trained, and then hand it over to the care provider and be like, look, here you go, here's a worker. So long answer to your question is, do we manage the training and compliance 100%? Yeah, okay, that's super interesting, because that's indeed, like, I had that question lined up as well. (laughs) Like, do you have this intermediation? Well, obviously you do. 
And then what do you do to keep them on a platform? So that's what you do to keep the nurses on the platform and as well as the care homes, of course, because that guarantees the qualities. But is there anything else that you add on top of just the transaction that you're like, this is a sticky feature? Yeah, totally. So, I mean, that's something we started to think about recently. And, you know, as you grow and scale, it becomes less about acquisition and more about retention, right? So, yeah. you know, when you've got 10 users and if you churn 10% of them a month, well, you just need to find one more user. It's not too much of a problem. But if you've got 10,000 users and you churn 10% of them every month, that's 1,000 users. So as you scale, that retention number becomes massive. So a lot of what we're thinking about at the moment is how can we provide value to both of those parties, supply and demand, out with that core transaction that keeps them locked into that engagement. So one thing we've released, uh, yeah, released tomorrow, actually, is a tool for the care providers to manage their own staff in there. So we say to them, hey, look, and you see lots of marketplaces kind of have taken this move quite successfully and said, look, you use Florence maybe four times a week to get a nurse in, but you have tens of your own staff that you struggle to kind of manage flexibly or put into shifts. Like, how can we give you the tools to manage that yourself? And that means they're interacting with the platform all the time. It's not just the one manager who uses it, it's everyone in the care home, and then suddenly you're locked in. Yeah. So that's on the demand side. And then on the supply side, you know, one thing, pain point that we've really noticed for our workers, our nurses and care workers is that training and professional development is really poorly done in that flexible nursing workforce. And they have a regulatory requirement to professionally develop and demonstrate that, but not really any kind of good platforms that help them do that. So we've built Florence Academy, which at the outset is an e-learning platform for them to upskill and professionally develop, but ultimately it's going to become a lot more as we build the community in there to enable them to interact together with each other, learn and develop from each other, support each other, gather feedback, record clinical skills. And ultimately, we want a nurse or a care worker to have their Florence profile as, you know, their validity, their badge, their professionalism, and it's got their kind of their work history in there. Yeah, and not even because I think that's something you can even turn around to acquisition as well, right? Like, it's nice to keep it as retention, but like, that sounds like potentially also a great tool to be using without even using a transaction. But if you can offer good enough software. Totally. And I think that's the thing. So let's take that academy piece, right? So we actually initially built it to help with our onboarding and compliance requirements because we were spending loads on external training providers. We were like, well, let's just build it ourselves and you know, do that. And then what we've realized is that people that engage with that are stickier. So we get a better LTV from them. It's working as an amazing acquisition channel that as you're paid social media, spend cost per user goes up as it always does. Yeah, you need to start thinking about more inventive ways of requiring users and it's kind of working like that. Yeah, because it sounds like a fantastic way, like on the nurse's side, if you can be like, is there in the industry paid services to do the schooling? I guess there is, right? Mm. Because you could become, I imagine you could become some kind of free competitor to that service. Like, hey, you get this for free. And then also you can eventually work through the platform. Is that something you considered? Yeah, totally. It's free. So definitely, like we believe firmly in the democratization of learning and development. So that professional development piece will always be free for workers, definitely. But actually, we're you know we're maybe a little bit platform or marketplace mad. So we're thinking, well, how can we turn that academy now into a platform? So how can we bring you know we've already got these oh, yeah. ecosystem of workers who want to learn and professionally develop, and we can fulfill some of that with our own content. But then, how can we let other people bring their own content or other training providers bring their own thing into that environment. So, yeah. Wow. So you're going to run four businesses. We, we, haven't, we haven't done that yet. We haven't done that yet. No, that's funny because we always say that like, or at least I regularly refer to Marketplace. Well, basically, you know, you're building two businesses, but you're going to now build four businesses because you're going to do a secondary Marketplace. Or although maybe three though, one, one side is still the same. Yeah. So that's, an, it's, that's an interesting point because, you know, on one hand, you go with the question of, 
hey, what can we do to provide value to our users that makes them want to stay in our ecosystem? And you've got all these great things you can do to provide value. And actually, this is a common uh, dilemma I have with my co-founder, Dan, who's like, we need to do everything. We need to just keep providing value to people and to bring them in. Yeah. Then the corollary to that is then the question of, you know, if you try and do everything, obviously you're not going to do this, you're going to do everything badly. So it's then trying to work out where to make those bets and where to invest. Yeah. I mean, you look at someone like, you know, Uber, you know, fairly well-known marketplace, took them quite a long time to diversify from that core offering of cab rides. Yeah, and it's also taking them quite a long time to become profitable. So, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily look at them as an example. Yeah, yeah, I mean, sure. so what's the situation with Florence? So you don't need to tell me if you're profitable or not, but do you have funding? No, we're nowhere near profitable. But I think we'll be, <laughs> be a charitable venture forever. No, so we've done a few rounds of funding. We did our Series A investment almost a year ago now led by some guys called seek who are great fantastic fantastic guys who do a lot of investment actually in on-demand uh staffing marketplaces across the world okay so they bring quite a lot of expertise to the table which is great and so you know quietly burning through that money trying to grow and scale as quickly as possible and you know optimize our unit economics ahead of our you know next foray yeah What's your five-year plan? Like coming back to what we discussed earlier. So you're now UK-wide. Am I correct in that? Or But still only in like a very small vertical of healthcare. So yeah, that's the next big question for us is, do we take the current you know model, which is nurses and care workers to care homes and take it to a new geography? And say the US, where I know the market pressures are the same and more or less we can replicate what we do here in the US. Or do you take the user base and the team and go into a different vertical in the uk so the obvious thing for us to attack is the nhs because it's massive 1.3 million staff you know yeah billions and billions of pounds a month a year spent on temporary workers but the challenge there and it comes back to that point around liquidity is you know you go and provide this solution to a hospital and you need to go and provide them with a solution that matches you know in a care home more or less any nurse can work any nursing home shift any care home shift now, if you're going to hospital, you need to have pediatric nurses, ITU nurses, surgical nurses, band five, band six, band seven. So this whole different taxonomy of specializations of workers, which provides a bit of a product problem, but mostly provides a liquidity challenge because you need to have those 100 intensive care nurses or 100 pediatric nurses, not just 100 nurses. So yeah. we haven't worked out the answer to that yeah. one yet, but I'm pretty convinced that it would be that from a market marketplace dynamics point of view, it would be easier to go to the US with all its different regulations, different you know laws, whatever, and replicate our current model there than it would be to try and expand into that really diversely taxonomized system that is the NHS. Yeah, that's an interesting question indeed. Yeah, I have no, because I have zero understanding of like what all the legal parts involved or even just the medical knowledge. And I can see that at least from where I'm standing from this sort of socialist welfare state that is Finland, healthcare in the US seems like there's a lot of money involved. So obviously there's a huge opportunity and it also seems extremely fragmented. So I can see really good benefits for the marketplace there. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently the Americans don't like doing business with the Brits though. So that might be a challenge. Mm, okay. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. And do you still have a category in the UK that you want to attack next? I mean, like there is of course, like a wide range now you just added, you now have care workers and nurses. Is there another category you can still add without ruining the taxonomy of the marketplace? Yeah, yeah. so I think next step in the in the UK is then say, right, we've now got a pretty liquid supply of nurses and care workers. And rather than going straight to the NHS, which is super complex, there's kind of steps we can take on the way there. So maybe we start to look at, you know, mental health care or, you know, learning disability care or, you know, care at home is not something we're interested in. Why is that? Well, I mean, it's a really challenging market for one. So 
if you just look at it from a unit economics point of view, the acquisition costs of a consumer, so providing care in someone's home are really high. And their lifetime value is by definition probably a bit limited because they need care and they're either going to get better or pass away or go into a long-term care facility. This is a bit broad brush, but it largely applies. Yeah. Versus let's say you sell to an institution, a B2B sale, where, okay, you have pretty high CACs, but you're, you know, you sell to a nursing home that might be there for, if you do well, 10, 20 years. So doing, you know, shifts, many shifts a week. So the unit economics stack up a bit more cleverly. And then also just from a risk perspective as well, providing care in someone's own home comes with like big regulatory risk, operational risk. You know, if someone doesn't turn up, it's bad in a nursing home, but at least there are some other people around to kind of smooth things over. But if someone doesn't turn up to provide care in someone's home, then it really is a bit of a disaster. All right. That makes sense. Yeah, because I just actually read this really interesting piece. I don't know. Have you read Marketplace 100? whole like list of articles by uh, Andreessen Horowitz? Mm, and Andrew Chen. Yeah. Yeah. So they did this whole study and there were a couple of articles around it. And one thing that I just keep getting back to because it just still sort of blows my mind, but... We often say indeed like, hey, well, good marketplace ideas have either like high frequency or uh, high transaction value. Mm. And they have both or either one or the other. And actually what came out of that is that of that marketplace top 100, something like 60 or 70% has an either. Actually, they are these really infrequent, like fairly mid to low transactions. And it can work if your acquisition model is really good. So referral is a really big one there. And if the market is huge, and that's actually what got me thinking now about this popped again in my head when you say the home care, because I would assume that home care is still a huge market. If you can somehow make the unique economics work there, indeed through referral, just being by an extremely known brand that you don't have to actually pay, you don't have to get them to pay the acquisition, this might actually work for you. Yeah, totally. I think that's what draws a lot of moths to the flame because it is a massive market. And I tell you, the way some people approach that, which is good, is, do you know Honor in the States? Yeah. They have a very clever approach, I think. So they started off providing B2C care where they like manage the care and, you know, went and did the care assessments and care plans and put people in and manage that whole process, which is great. And then they realized, wow, this is actually going to be really challenging to scale because we need to actually have a team everywhere. So you'll be able to go in because when a customer signs up, they need to have send someone in to go and go like, well, actually, what sort of care does this person need? Yeah. They realized that's going to be really challenging to do. So they said instead, right, well, across the country, there's loads and loads of these fragmented care agencies who what they do really well is offering very person-centric care and those relationships, which are really, really important, right? So if you're looking for care for your mother, you know, it's all very well being able to manage it through an app, but actually the most important thing is the relationship with the person who comes through the front door. And there are loads of people out there doing that really well. So what they've done is instead of saying, right, we're going to directly provide the care, we're going to take a step back and we're going to say, we're actually the marketplace that connects that consumer to the care provider, and we're going to be the ecosystem and the platform on which that relationship runs. So we'll still manage all the transaction, the bookings, the compliance, the training, and all that kind of stuff. But the actual human capital is managed by individual care providers. And that's a pretty good model, I think. Yeah, is that a model that you're looking at? Because I was actually wondering, we haven't even touched on, I'm assuming that Florence is making money through some kind of fee on the transaction. Am I right? Mm -hmm. Have you considered other ways where you could capture more value by you know, capturing more of that process? Well, totally, totally. So, you know, some of these other things about not so much academy on the work side, but well, okay, for example, take academy on Florence Academy on the work side, which we use to professionally develop and train our workers. Well, doesn't take too much to then go to a care provider care home and say, you've got 200 workers here that all have the same personal professional development and training requirements. Use Florence Academy to train and professionally develop them. And you know, you charge a subscription model on that. And so we're investigating some other stuff like that at the moment. And ultimately, we would love to get to the point where 
We're getting some good recurring subscription revenue from care providers because they're using our products to manage their own staff pool. And then when they have the gap and when they have the requirement, we can parachute in a, a worker. And also, last thing, the most important thing there is the insights and the data you get out of that. So if, you know, more of that human capital lifecycle you're capturing in your users, especially on the demand side, the more insight and data you have into how that market works. And it means it gives you super powerful, you know, it gives you a great ability to then do a load of things. So plan your supply much more intelligently to send people to training in the right way. It's really, really very powerful. Yeah. Was it something that you thought about beforehand? Like, hey, what can we do with the data that this will generate? Yeah, we're always thinking about that, but we haven't come up with like a super monetizable solution in its own right. So what we can do is we can use our data to drive a lot of decision making. So loads of decision making within the business. But it's not like, for example, the classic case would be if you're collecting actual patient data or resident data, then you do have a pretty powerful well that can be used to do a lot of things. Yeah. But I'm still waiting on the call from Google to uh, come and have a look at that. They probably, yeah. see it. they probably see it all anyway. We use Looker, so I'm sure they see it all. But All right. Hey, last question, actually. Was there anything you would have done? So you've, like, you've told us you've come a long way. You, you started as a doctor. You saw this problem. You paid for an app that didn't work, moved to Google Sheets, scaled London or West London, London, Manchester, now the whole of the UK. We just went through what else you can do. Could you name, first of all, what you would have done differently? <laughs> one thing that you're like, oh, I would never do that again. And then also one like, okay, this was my biggest success. I would recommend any marketplace entrepreneur to do this first. So I think, you know, there is loads of failures that or things that we could have done differently that we've recovered from. And so, you know, you can learn and move on. And, you know, classic example would be trying to build a product in an echo chamber without speaking to users. Classic one ultimately hasn't given us any like long-term damage and there are very few things i think you can i might eat my hat on this but there's not that many things you can do early on that are mistakes that you can make that are you can't really recover from with the exception of early decisions you make around things like co-founders cap tables and your founding team members and in a number of those domains we've been incredibly lucky and got it right but in a couple of them we've got it probably a bit wrong and made some mistakes so one bit of advice there would be, especially when you're thinking about early stage founders, co-founders, advisors, especially early investors, deals, all that kind of stuff. Just be very, very careful and very specific about what it is you're actually looking for, because equity seems really, really cheap early doors. But, you know, percentage points, early doors, which seem like not very much, seem like a hell of a lot further down the line. Okay, that's really solid advice. And then what is your success story? They're like, hey, this worked out so great. Such a good decision or such a good tactic or strategy. I don't know. I think maybe slightly a circuitous answer to your question, but I think, and maybe it's slightly cheesy, but the thing I look back uh, and go like, oh, well, that's really good is the team around us, the team around me, in terms of like the success story so far and the pleasure I've got so far, it's definitely like finding and bringing those people together because I just maybe sit here and do the occasional podcast. They're the ones that actually make stuff happen. So. Is that too cheesy an answer? Ah, that's all right. That sounds really good. I mean, it's actually a very good point about that because I think that in this podcast, often we go so much down the technical rabbit hole and just think about processes and, and software stacks and tactics and not exactly around the people. So I, I take that. Yeah. Very good. Thanks very much. Hey, this was it for us. Thanks for joining. Any final plugs? 
Well, if you're a nurse or a care worker or indeed a care home in the United Kingdom, then you can go to florence.co.uk and sign up. But you're probably not if you're listening to this podcast. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Thanks very much for having me. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Two Sided, the Marketplace podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, don't forget to subscribe. If you listen on iTunes, we'd also love for you to rate and give us a review. If you got inspired to build your own marketplace, go visit www.sharetribe.com. It's the fastest way to build a successful online marketplace business. Until next time.